And so we're going to be in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 14. I'm just going to pull uh, a couple of things out from that to help us get an idea of that. So with that, I'm going to ask you to stand uh, as I read uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We're standing, one, to give your bottom a rest or to get blood stimulated. That's one reason. And sometimes I'm in a church where we just ask people to stand in honor and respect for God's word. So that's a part of it too. But I'm going to be in uh, Ephesians 1. I'm going to read 3 through 14. And I want you to notice as I read this, or if you're looking on and you're a device or your Bible, how many times Paul in these verses uses the word in, I-N, in. Let's take a look as we read. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Uh, if you think that, let me just stop and say, if you think that's sexist, it's just the opposite. That what, one of the things that Jesus and Paul did was elevate the role of women to a place of co-inheritorship uh, with men. So there's that. Um, and then through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, that means predetermined, by God, it speaks of his sovereignty, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard about the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who was our guarantee, who is our guarantee uh, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for this church. We do want to commit this year to you. We want to want what you want. So I ask you to do what no human can do and invade each heart with your thoughts, your purpose, your plans, your longings, your desire. And we commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have, have a seat. Thank you. Now, this passage contains some of the richest theology of the whole uh, Bible. One of the things that I want to point out to you, that there's something very, very distinctive about this passage of Scripture, and, and that is that this passage, after a brief, um, somewhat normal uh, opening for Paul, a typical greeting begins one of the loftiest sentences in the New Testament. In the original Greek language, uh, verses 3 through 14 that we just read is one single glorious run-on sentence of 202 words. Now, what was Paul thinking when that happened? Paul's a very educated guy. You know what's going on uh, with him. He understands grammar. And so what was going on with Paul when this happened? 
what's happening here with Paul is that we experience Paul experiencing Christ. That's what we're seeing. There's a similar passage in Peter, where first, in 1 Peter, where Peter, that happens to Peter too. He just, out of the overflow of his love and his passion, he speaks. And then John does it in 1 John chapter 3 as, as well. And so we're experiencing Paul experiencing God. And so I just want to talk for a few minutes about how we might make ourselves available to something similar in our lives as well, both individually and as a church. The passage contains some of the richest theology of the whole Bible. It's also a form from that, as I said, 202-word run-on sentence. It's the overflow of a worshiping heart that loves both God and God's people. And it's a beautiful example of spirit and truth, that tension, that divine tension. You know, we talk about some churches have, they're all spirit and no truth, or some churches are all truth and no spirit, but the call of God is for us to live in this dynamic tension of spirit and truth, and this is a beautiful expression of that. Out of, out of his innermost being, this, this amazing theology is just jumping out of him. And so we must ask the question, how, how can we come to know God in this way? And this is part of my heart for us as a church, is for me and for you, that we would move in this direction. And Paul is literally showing us that experiencing God is, is when truth overflows out of our mind and then into our heart and then moves to our hands and also to our feet. When the truth about God and the truth about our identity in God as a follower of Jesus, it, it just surges into every other part of our lives. Think about lightning striking a lightning rod. That's the kind of surge that I'm talking about here. That's the kind of surge that I think Paul is experiencing even as he's writing this. Think of uh, Michelangelo's uh, creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. We're all familiar with that beautiful, beautiful painting. There's a surge and life is created out of that. Um, Tim Keller says it this way, a, a theologian, author from down in New York City. He says, knowing God is when truth moves from something that we understand to something that we stand under. Something that we understand, it's in our head, but then something that we stand under. He goes on to say it's, it's like going from knowing to beholding. And that's the language of John in 1 John chapter 3. Behold the love of God. Behold the God of love. And so we go to beholding. That's an act of worship. It's not just in the mind, but it, it overflows out into the rest of us. Think of it this way. Think of a father. There's a little sticky part on this. I'm going to have to move this over. But think of a father taking his son to his freshman year in college. And so they get out of the car, they unpack the car into the dorm room, and then the son walks his father to the car. And when they get to the car, the father hugs the son, kisses his cheek, and says to him, I love you, and I will do anything necessary, even die, to make sure that you have everything that you need. And the son weeps. What's going on? What's going on here? This is not new information. 
the son knew that his father, he already knew that his father loved him. It's not a new idea, but the idea becomes new. See what I mean? See what happened there? The idea becomes new. He doesn't get new information, but the information becomes new. He experiences his father's love in a new and really profound way, and it changes him. To know God means that we experience the sweetness of God's embrace in our lives, and then the truth becomes radioactive and moves in us and through us outwards. That's, that's what I want for us. Maybe this has happened to you, maybe it hasn't. I think this needs to happen to us over and over and over again. And I want every person who calls Community Covenant Church their home church to experience this, not just once, but again and again and again. I'm going to move down to a, another part, skip a part that I had planned. Here's a good question. Is there anything that you and I can do to position ourselves to receive this grace in our lives? And I think the answer is yes. We can humbly and persistently ask for it. God, I want to experience you in that way. I want to experience you the way that Paul did. I want to experience you the way that that son did with his father. How can we position ourselves? We can humbly and persistently ask for it. Humbly and persistently ask for it. When uh, Paul is closing his letter to the Ephesian church, in verse 18, this is what he says. Pray with unceasing prayer and entreaty on every fitting occasion in the spirit and be always on the alert to seize opportunities for doing so with unwearied persistence and entreaty on behalf of all God's people. Basically, what Paul is saying here is, is pray. We're invited to pray. We're invited to be humble. We're invited to go to God in our humility and ask for him to pour out his spirit upon us. I think staying humble and tenderhearted is quite helpful in positioning ourselves. I want to think back on our, our study of the Beatitudes I, back in October and beyond a little bit. Remember, there in the Beatitudes, there's an emptying, and then there's a filling. We acknowledge that we're poor in spirit. We acknowledge that we can't get there from here. There's a mourning that goes, that goes on in our own life and also a mourning for the world around us. Like, what's, this is not good. This, God, what are you doing? And then we become humble learners, which is my definition for meekness. We become humble learners in that. We're meek. And then what takes place in us is that there is a hunger for God that grows in our lives. So there's an emptying and then a filling that positions us to receive from God in a new way. Two quick points I'd like to make as we um, begin to land the plane here. Uh, I want to look at Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 again. Here's what it says. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which is lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The first two words there in verse 7 in him. And I ask you to pay attention as I read, and maybe you noticed more than you have before, the number of times the word in is used, or in him. Uh, what's going on here is that we're beginning to see one of the most important doctrines 
of the Christian church, and it's called union with Christ, union with Christ. And it's connected with grace. It's, it's overlapping in that certainly in him, in him, in him. Paul uses the language in Christ or in him roughly 40 times in the book of Ephesians alone. It was used 11 times in that passage I just read, and it's used about 140 times throughout the New Testament. And so I want to give you just a quick overview of what union with Christ accomplishes. And we're just going to add these uh, simply stated. It's that connection enjoyed by believers individually and corporately with the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's go to the next slide. I think it's the next one. And we'll begin. I just want to walk you through some bullet points about what it means. In him, or union with Christ, we are treated by God as if we had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. That's the first aspect. I'm giving you a 30,000-foot overview of union with Christ. The second one is we are given a place at the table that Jesus earned through his perfect obedience. Now, you're gonna, you and I are going to stand before God someday. Do you want to stand him with your track record of obedience, or do you want to stand before God with his, with Jesus' track record of obedience? We get to choose. Yours or his? Which do you want? I want his. I want his. So let's do that. Let's just do that. And the third one is we have the same access to the Father that Jesus does. If we understand this doctrine of union with Christ, we'll see that we have the same access to the Father that Jesus does. Number four, this, this comes not from us doing anything. There's no works involved here, but on the basis of grace through faith. That's how it comes to us. And then number five, in God's eyes, Jesus' perfect record is credited to the believer. All that is true of Christ is now true of you. Folks, how would your life be different if you really believed that? Mine would be different than what it is now. If you're a believer, all that is true of Jesus, if you're in Christ, right? If you're in him, all that is true of Christ is now true of you. We'll need some time to move towards this, to engage it, to embrace it, to take it in and begin to live our lives like we really, really believe this. That's my hope for us. And finally, I, I want to extrapolate from this passage a definition of grace. Uh, I mentioned this last week in our contemporary culture, the word grace uh, has lost its meaning in many ways. Our culture thinks of grace as, as overlooking the faults of another. And that's actually more like mercy than grace. Mercy and grace are overlapping but different. That's another sermon, right? But, but grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned or overlooking the sins of another. Grace is a force. Grace is a power that initially awakens us to God, awakens us to the gospel, but then there's ongoing power to change. This theological term is sanctification or transformation. We don't need grace just for salvation, but we need grace to change. We need grace for transformation. We need grace for sanctification as well. It's true that grace pardons us, but grace is more than pardon. It's also power. So, I want to look at uh, verses 7 and 8 one more time. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he, key word here, I think, this, I think this is the New American Standard, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So I want to give you my best definition of grace. I heard this, I thought it was me, but then my wife reminded me we heard this 35 years ago uh, from somebody else. Wives, you're good at that. You're so, <laughs> you're so helpful, you know, thinking I'm really spiritual, but no, I'm not. Okay, so let's look at, I think, my best definition for grace. I think it's here. All that God is lavishly poured into you. That's grace. And for some of us, really, it's hard to believe that, right? What, me? God lavishly pouring into me? That's grace. Let me finish with just a story, quick story. A woman named Hetty Green died in 1916. She left an estimated uh, estate valued at about $100 million. She was known, uh, she was born in New Bedford, by the way. Uh, she worked, lived and died in New York City. She's known as the Witch of Wall Street. And she went down in history as America's greatest miser. It was said that she ate cold oatmeal because she didn't want to pay for the cost of heating it. Her son had to eventually have his leg amputated because she was too cheap to pay for medical attention for him. Hetty Green was the wealthiest woman in the world, and yet she chose to live like a pauper. Her life becomes this excellent illustration for us of the way that many Christians live today. We have this unlimited spiritual wealth, spiritual power at our disposal. But so often we live in spiritual poverty because we don't know what's aware, what's available to us as people. All that God is lavishly poured into you. That is the Christian life. So what is our 2020 vision? It's not my job to come up with that. I can give you general, uh, not specifics. This is my hope for us, that our hearts would become aware of this. Let's begin to ask God to show us individually and corporately who we are in Him. I want you to know that. I want to know more of that myself, too. 